came across something in a book, just to follow up a little bit on last week's class, a book on prayer by Metropolitan Hilarion Alfiev, who's a modern-day Russian bishop. Talks about the, there's a little chapter called The Battle with Extraneous Thoughts. I should copy this for you, but it says, one of the main obstacles to attentive prayer is the appearance of extraneous thoughts, thoughts coming out of St. John of Kronstadt, the great ascetic, at uh, the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th centuries, describes in his diaries how during the celebration of the Divine Liturgy at most crucial and sacred moments before his mind's eye would appear an apple pie or some other reward that he might be given, with bitter regret he suggests how such extraneous images and thoughts can destroy a prayerful state. If such things happen with the saints, then there is nothing surprising that happens to us. To protect ourselves from extraneous thoughts and images, we have to learn, as did the ancient fathers of the church, to guard our minds, quote-unquote, to guard our minds. In the writings of the ancient church, there was a detailed development of how outside thoughts gradually penetrate a person. The first stage of this process is called an article, that is, the sudden appearance of a thought. This thought is still completely alien, but appears somewhere on the horizon. Its penetration inside us begins when we begin to pay attention to it, enter into conversation with it, examine and analyze it. Then begins what the church fathers called combination. Combination when man's mind, as it were, merges with the thought. Finally, the thought turns into a passion and embraces the whole person, and then both prayer and the spiritual life are forgotten. For this not to happen is very important to cut off extraneous thoughts at their first appearance, not allowing them to penetrate deeply into the soul, heart, and mind. Learning to do this requires a lot of work. You cannot but be distracted at prayer if you do not learn to fight with extraneous thoughts. One of the diseases of modern man is that he is unable to control the work of his own brain. His brain is autonomous and thoughts come and go spontaneously. Modern man, as a rule, does not follow what is going on in his mind. But to learn true prayer, you need to follow your thoughts and to expel ruthlessly those that do not correspond to a prayerful disposition. Short prayers help in overcoming distractions and extraneous thoughts. Lord, have mercy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me and others, which do not require a special focus on the words, but incline one to the birth of feelings and the movement of the heart. With the help of such prayers, you can learn to pray attentively and to focus on prayer. So, a battle with extraneous thoughts. Our subject tonight is us. That's, that's a shadow. Um, Christian anthropology, the church's, the church's teaching on man, humanity. Anthropology the, the, comes from the Greek word anthropos, which means man, which includes woman. There's no feminine of the word. It's, it's, in, 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 it's included both male and female, anthropos, man, wow. humanity. Thank you. So we've touched on this, but we'll continue to do so. Why? Why are we created? We're created by God to know God. We're created to be in communion with God, to know God. And to have dominion. To have dominion. 
we're called to be kings, priests, and prophets on behalf of the rest of creation, to the rest of creation, kings, priests, and prophets. And first we note, most importantly, that our dominion is kind, is benevolent. Our dominion over the rest of creation is as God is, by loving kindness and service towards the rest of creation, having love and care. It's not dominion by tyranny and oppression. And of course this has certainly has environmental, political, and social aspects to it in our understanding of our role. Um, when we speak of ourselves being as priests, we're go-betweens, we're intermediaries. We stand before God on behalf of the rest of creation, and we stand um, and, and we represent the rest of creation to God. But to know God, to be united to God, is our destiny. It is the reason for which we exist, for, for the reason for that, for, for the way things are and for, and for why things are. Our destiny is, is an everlasting life in joyful and harmonious communion with God and with the whole of creation. It is an orthodox teaching, orthodox doctrine, that a human being is never finished in his or her development and growth because God's life is limitless, boundless, and inexhaustible. So by the nature of God, our life in God is, an, is a never-ending, eternal growth because we can never exhaust God. We can never know everything about God there is to know uh, just based on who we are as finite, limited creatures. So we grow through participation in the life of God for all eternity. That's the orthodox vision of our life, so that eternity, the life beyond this life, is not just a static, uh, boring, saved condition where we're just kind of stuck, but a continual dynamic growth in, in God ongoing. To grow, as the, as the book says, to grow in an infinity of ever greater fullness of life in the Holy Trinity, progressing eternally, uh, in perfection. This is the meaning of life. So we, there you are. There's the meaning of life. Got that covered. But it's important. I mean, it's, that's it. I mean, it's, it's by, again, the nature of who God is, there, there's uh, a, a never-ending uh, journey, a never-ending uh, research and study and opening into the depths and meaning of life in God. Uh, as human beings, we're made in God's image. We are the only creatures that can mentally time travel, that we can think in terms of past, present, and future. We can conceive of infinity. We can conceive of never-ending life. So our task on earth is to, to reflect God and have dominion, therefore, is uh, to know God, therefore, is to reflect God, to be ourselves, a reflection of God's image. To be a mirror to God, to make God present. We call the saints God-bearers. God-bearers. Those who literally are bearing God in their, in their, in their being. Do we, do we have this class before? No. Is this, this, is this new to those of you that are new? 
touched on it. When God is present, there's paradise. So we believe that being made in God's image, um, that we have a higher destiny than the angels. We have a higher destiny calling than the bodiless hosts, the bodiless powers. We are, we are in a way, a superior life form, though you could say the angels live in an advanced state in their general way of life now. But our ultimate potential, the potential we have of, of unity with God, allows us to go deeper in God than, than, than the, the angels. Um, because it's not said of the angels that they're made in God's image. Only, it's only said of human beings. And indeed, the Lord's mother, Theotokos, who we call the New Eve, is more honorable than the cherubim, more glorious beyond compare than the seraphim, that she has reached a higher calling than any angel. To ultimately be human, to know what it means to be human, to understand, to understand what it means to be human, is to, is to see the face of Jesus Christ. The only way to appreciate and see what it means to be truly human is to see Christ. That he is the perfect image of God. He's the perfect icon of God. He's the perfect image of humanity. He's the perfect icon of what it is to be fully human. To be, so to be like Christ uh, is, is to be fully human. Is to, is to find your, the depth of your, the truth of your, of your humanity, of your human identity, is to be found in Jesus Christ. And, and then to be like Christ to sh- is to share in the attributes of God by grace. As St. Maximus the Confessor said, that our, the, go- the goal, the calling for human beings is, is to become by grace all that God is by his very nature. To become by grace all that God is by his very nature. That God draws us into union with himself. That Adam, Adam humanity, all of us find our true significance in Jesus Christ. From a uh, theological writer, uh, modern theologian, he says, Adam, the father of our race, was carnal, fleshly, and sinful. Consequently, all the race of humanity is carnal and, and sinful, since sinner begets sinner. The second father, Jesus Christ, is spiritual, holy, and the source of holiness. Consequently, his race the race of the Christians, is holy and spiritual. All those who wholeheartedly believe in him and follow him with all their will are reborn through divine grace into the new life of the Spirit and become, because of their spiritual inheritance, become spiritual and holy also. This is St. Paul's teaching. Hence it is a sacred dogma, doctrine, and holy truth of our church. He also says the following, this time in reverse manner. He says... Just as all sinners have one father, the first Adam, so likewise do all spiritual men have a single father, the second Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ. The first, and then we, he, and this, was, this is cited in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. So St. Paul compares the first Adam to Christ as the new Adam. As is the earthly, such are also the earthly. That is, as is the heavenly, such are also those that are heavenly. That is, those who are reborn of Christ, the heavenly Adam. As we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. So, 
our Lord Jesus Christ represents in it the new model of, of humanity. That in Adam, in, in effect, humanity was defective. Just like you have a defective product, as it be recalled? Well, that was the whole human race. It was defective and needed to be remodeled, reconstituted, recreated. And Jesus Christ is the recreation of, of, of all humanity. So that then everyone in him, behold, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Everyone in him then takes on the new, revived, restored, recreated humanity of, of our Lord. And of course, we would say that happens through the church, ultimately through the grace that's imparted to us in the life of the church. Questions on that? Yes, Well, ultimately, the, I mean, fundamentally, the orthodox definition of grace is the presence of the Holy Spirit. It is, it is a direct communion with God. Now, how God administers his presence or presents himself to each of us May, may seem uniquely different to each of us in some ways. Though I think when you look at the saints, they, they say pretty much consistent things about the presence of grace uh, when it comes to them. The encounter with, with the Holy Spirit, that um, there's a consistency of peace. As St. As Paul says, that the kingdom of God is peace, joy, and righteousness in the Holy Spirit. So grace is, in a sense, the pre the, also the experience of heaven already, the experience of the kingdom. But we, we are careful to say it's not simply this force, not simply this um, energy, though it is the energies of God, but they're personal energies. It's the personal presence, the real presence of the third person of God, the Holy Spirit. So, so grace is a living encounter with the Holy Spirit we would say and that grace is imparted to us in, in all all kinds of ways um, with with the first and foremost being Holy Communion in the church Holy Eucharist um, but also in confession and, and certainly of course first and foremost at our baptism but but in the sacraments of, of communion and confession and any of the blessings of blessing of holy water and Partaking of that is is a gift of grace, a blessing of grace, um, and all the other blessings, anointings of holy oil and so forth. Um, grace is imparted to us in any number of ways, and in our own personal prayer, uh, the Lord imparts grace to us as He knows we're able to receive it. Um, and I, that's that's the one thing we would say is that grace, God gives the gift of His presence to those whom he understands or he knows can receive it in the way that he that he presents it. And so again, some people may experience God at a different level than others simply because of their own personal state. The more pure, the more holy is the human being, the deeper potential for union with God. So we say that our state of being very much um, is 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 in a factor in, in how we connect with God, how we how we commune with God. 
the image of God in us is tarnished, is tarnished by sin. St. John Chrysostom says, Though I bear the image of thy ineffable glory, I am tarnished by sin. So we're made in the image of God, called to grow into his likeness, uh, which is the achievement of virtue and sanctity through, through, through the practical living of Christian life uh, as our vocation, that a human being can grow in the likeness of God or in the likeness of Satan. There's two different ways to go. But when a human being becomes holy and pure on earth through, through spiritual warfare and struggle, uh, the person is to, then this person is to be raised after this life to the heavenly kingdom of God. After we talk about us in our fundamental vocation, then we have to deal with the fact of sin. Sin as, as the reason that God would have to become human, take on flesh, take on our humanity. The Greek word for sin is amartia. Amartia. Which literally means missing the mark, missing the bullseye. Uh, a sense of a missed, missed potential. A tragedy, the original tragedy of sin. Sin as not simply a breaking of a rule, but sin as a failure to be what one should be, and the sin as a failure to do what one should do. It's a, it's a sense of failed vocation, a failed to live up to the high calling of being a human being in made in God's image. I've marked Roman three, Romans 3.23, but I'm not sure why. So we'll look at it. Oh yeah, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So sin is, is, is familiar to all of us. Sin is intimate with our fallen nature. We're not a stranger to sin. The original sin was the fall of our first parents. Adam and Eve. We read in Genesis 2:16 and 17, and the, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. The sin of Adam is thinking he could be like God, that if he, if he bought into that not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that he could be like God without God. To be like God without God, which, is, which ultimately is the sin of Satan, of the fallen angel, thinking that he could be like God, but in rebellion from God, without God, as in, in opposition to God. That he could be like God uh, of his own will and effort, so the temptation of Satan is, in effect, the temptation he, put, he lays on us. And the, the false promise, the lie, that, that you can, God, God knows that you could be like God. He, he tells them. Uh, 
the serpent in Genesis 3. For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, G-O-D-S, small g. Uh, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So he's promising them a false glory, a false promise of, of, of elevation of their life to, to, to that thinking they could be something without God. The kingdom of God without God is the temptation of every human uh, utopia, communism, Nazism, so forth, to think that we, the human beings, can create a perfect world uh, of this world, with, but excluding God from it. And that's the temptation that continues to exist, indeed, uh, is deepening with, in, uh, with technological certainty. Uh, in our own in our own day in our own time, the uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil also just represents. Um, when people say, "What does that mean? What was that?" It 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 um, simply simply in a way it means something else. That the tree represents something else of the created order, anything else, something else instead of God. Some satisfaction of life some 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 type of false fulfillment that one could again achieve without god that which you would normally uh get from god you can get else in, in elsewhere from that tree and saint gregory the theologian also speaks of it as as representing a shortcut a shortcut to sanctity a shortcut to the to the fulfillment of one's calling as a human being again uh, in a false way, since 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 it doesn't since it goes against God's will for your life, so it doesn't include God. Yes. I had a thought going in my head, in my mind, and I did it go out. I was, was trying to. I'm still trying to hold on to it as it's, as it's leaving. But when they're saying it's something else, it's a, a, a shortcut. Could it possibly be that that Adam and Eve did not? Well, it's true they they didn't they could not imagine they could not know the results of going against God's will for them, what it would what it would mean. Again, they were being tempted; they were being deceived by the guile of the serpent, as we say in the church's prayers. Um, they were tricked, you know. So that that's what makes their sin different. They were, they were, but Satan still says the same things to us in this generation and every generation since. Well, I was I was reading one of the, the fathers and he equated it to. Forget which, which father I was reading. He equated it to uh, that once death came into the world, it became all the more harder for humanity to not fall into that same trap because death would terrorize us and we would think that we have to. It's something that we must do, otherwise death will come and get us. Well, and, and, and sin is a way to somehow hold on to life, mm -hmm. yes. hold on to 
you know, reaching reaching for some type of again Utopia. pleasure, fulfillment, you know, outside of God that brings brings a satisfaction, knowing you're going to die and so forth. Eat, let's eat, drink, and be eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. You know that attitude of you know. So so the fact that um, the wages of sin is death. We die as a result of of the primordial sin of Adam and Eve that brought death to the world that that sin and death are tied up together the fear of death you know pushes people uh, to 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 do things in life that are can be extreme can be uh, uh and and sinful thinking that let's let's since we're going to since we're going to die let's go for all go for all the gusto we can so to speak you know rather than say I live in a fallen world but God is God lives God is real and I have to be sober and clear and seek seek the will of God for my life you know would um pardon me for another question father would the, would the orthodox church say that even if somebody lives without sin because death is in the world therefore they are subject to corruption and death in that way? well the it wouldn't the church wouldn't say that anybody lives without sin there's, you know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even, even the greatest saints have sinned. The only one we don't attribute any particular personal sin to is the Mother of God. That there's no evidence of sin in her life that we're aware of, and nor do we look for it. But it's not attributable. She's the closest. But we say we sing of our Lord in the church's hymns. We call him the only sinless one. Our Lord Jesus as the only sinless human being to ever live. So, and as He is restoring our humanity that way by being perfect human, by being perfect man, perfect perfect God and perfect man, perfect human. And the saints, well, the, the the interesting thing about sin and and holiness is it it's apparent in the in the lives of the saints that the, the closer they grow to God, the clo- the more they the the closer they draw near to God, the more they see themselves as sinners. The more they see the depth of their brokenness and sinfulness, as as drawing as they get closer and closer to God. Now their sins, and and as they talk about them and confess them, or we would think think of them as almost trite and obsessive and silly, you know, because they're so minimal. They're so oh, I craved an extra bean in my my dinner or something, or an extra biscuit because because I'm a glutton, you know. Okay, all right. <laughs> So wish my, wish that was my sin that I just 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 an, just one extra biscuit today. That's my sin for the day. That would be a that would be progress for sure. But that's that's how they are. They're 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 so sensitive to to the every subtle movement of their spirit that is it is, is it any way taking them off the path of glory and they they so they they react and. and confess things that um, we would probably not even notice in ourselves. 
the fall of Adam and Eve was a brought a, brought to the world a cosmic cosmic sin, which is to say the whole creation is impacted, the whole cosmos, which means the universe, the the world. Um, that that man brings all of creation under the rule of sin and death. That we bring down the whole of creation with our sin. That uh, sin and sin begets and invites more sin and, and evil. And again, Romans six: the wages of sin is death. Uh, there's a cause and effect reality to sin and death. God, God does not punish us with death. Um, he says to to Adam, "The day you eat of that tree, ye shall surely die. If you eat of that the tree that I forbid you, and that's that's not saying that's different than saying." If you eat of that tree, I will kill you. Again, it's saying that the, the, the act of that, the act of disobedience will be a break in the lifeline uh, between, between God, between me as God and, and you as my creature, and that will cause your death ultimately. So the, the act of it is, is, has its own built-in punishment. It's not that God's punishing Adam, but that he in effect punishes himself. As Father Shememin used to say, God did not create a cosmic cemetery. God didn't intend for us to die. Um, but that through the fall, Adam's eternal potential to grow into the likeness of God um, was instead turned into the cultivation of wickedness. One of the distinctions of Orthodox uh, doctrine and Christian anthrop- Orthodox anthropology, the, the teaching of, of humanity is, is uh, and we're going to talk about this, that um, Orthodoxy has a more positive vision of humanity in light of the fall, even after the fall, than do other Western uh, uh, versions of Christianity. And we'll talk about how that is and why that is, but probably... Um, at this point, we'll stop and take a break. So we believe and teach in orthodoxy that we are each born into the world, each human being is born into the world essentially good, good in our essence, but infected, infected, death-bound, mortal in body, um, born, in, as someone said, born into a world filled with the wicked fruit of past generations of evil servants that were, were born... And so this is the nature versus nurture argument. Um, do we are we sinful because of our nature, or because we're born into a sinful world? And the answer is both. That um, we have sin in our our being as a result of of fallen humanity, and we were born into a sinful world where invariably we will sin. We will learn sin, so to speak. But we still we still hold to the fact of our essential goodness. God looked at the creation and said, Behold, it is very good. And that very good includes us. That very good includes us, both our spiritual and our physical reality. And even though we say these strong things about sin and and the wages of sin being death, and that um, as a result of sin, that the creation becomes the devil's princedom, lying in wickedness. Uh, 1 John 5, 19. 
we know that we are of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness. So wherever there's sin, there's evil. Wherever there's sin and evil, there's the devil. Wherever, wherever there's sin and evil and the devil, there's suffering and death. They're all tied together. Sin, evil, devil, death. The teaching is sin is enslaving. That we, become, we can become slaves to sin. And that the fundamental gospel message is that man and the world need to be saved. We need to be saved from our sinful state and condition. And that promise of salvation was first given to Abraham, that he would, would be the father of many nations, and that Old Testament promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who not only repairs the damage of sin, but indeed destroys sin and death, and elevates humanity to an even higher destiny than Adam had. That he lifts us up into a higher potential than Adam uh, could ever imagine. And, and we'll talk about the cross, but again, an important emphasis in, in the fathers, and therefore in orthodoxy, is not only does, does Christ forgive our sins on the cross, take our sins upon himself, but he destroys death. He destroys the power of death, that death no longer is a dead end, but death becomes pascha. Death becomes, even though there's still biological death, even after the coming of Christ, but death no longer is a dead end. Death becomes a passage from life to eternal life. Uh, when one is united uh, to God through Jesus Christ, um, that he that he destroys the sting of of sin, which is death. He destroys uh, the sting, indeed, the sting of death. Now, when we look at sin, we look at the original sin. Um, there's a different vision of of what that sin does to us in Orthodoxy and in Western versions of Christianity and this 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 is your favorite time this is the this is it this is what you always say why do I talk about this stuff <laughs> but but it's but it's it's I think it's important well it is important uh, that you understand why orthodoxy sees what or how orthodoxy sees itself differently how orthodoxy thinks of us human human beings in a different way than is preached uh, in, in elsewhere and and why that is what the roots of that are and and how orthodoxy has a different vision different path um, just because it because of a, a different a different identity a different history so when in in Western conceptions of original sin, Western being Western Europe, the Latin West as opposed to the Greek East, when Western thinkers began to look at original sin, they um, saw it as having a profoundly more deeper impact on, on humanity, breaking us down far more than did the Greek fathers, than did the Eastern fathers of the church. Which is to say, specifically, Augustine, St. Augustine, who is controversial, but still considered by most to be a saint of the church, though certainly uh, 
with some errors in his teaching that um, he looked at sin, the original sin of Adam, and and said that from thenceforth every generation carries with it the guilt, the guilt of original sin, that we're each culpable, that we're each guilty of the sin of of previous generations that that um, were born guilty and Augustine spoke of humanity as a result of sin being a massa this is Latin a massa damnata a massa damnata a massa damnation that because of sin we're broken uh, we're our nature is perverted our nature is uh, we have as some people talk about a sin nature that that we're depraved that we're hopeless helpless useless unable to as a result of sin of the primordial sin the original sin the sin of Adam that we inherit inherited sin that um that we're, our humanity uh, is is essentially spoiled. We can orthodoxy and the Eastern Fathers did not teach this, did not believe this, and still see emphasize the image of God in us. That that we're still have that image, even though it's tarnished, it's it's dirtied by sin, but still we bear that dignity of the image of God. That's not destroyed. That's not broken. Augustine never says the image of God is, but it, it, it almost almost implies that it is or forgets about it. And his very negative vision of, of humanity as a result of, of sin um, is carried forward in Western theological teaching. Not all, and, and we're talking... We're talking, he lives in the 400s, so he lives in the 5th century. But his voice becomes the main theological voice in, in the West, in the, in the Western Church, and even continues to be the, the main, and, uh, ultimate, and then Thomas Aquinas comes in later, who has a little more balanced, I'm not an expert on Aquinas, but a little more balanced approach to, to Christian doctrine, but... Still, everybody more or less embraces this negative vision of, of Augustine. So, for instance, a baby is born guilty. If a baby dies unbaptized, for uh, the teaching has been in, in, in Rome that, that the child goes into limbo. Limbo. Limbo, because the child's born guilty. Again, orthodoxy say no. Orthodoxy says no. A child is born innocent of sinful parents, born into a sinful world, but not 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 personally guilty of anything. But again, Augustine says we somehow inherit the guilt. So a child must the child must be baptized in order to wash off that guilt of original sin. Otherwise they go to limbo. Now recently I heard that they did away with limbo. So I don't know what changed, but they decided that wasn't necessary. (coughs) 
We have no such teaching in orthodoxy. So this very negative vision of humanity developed by Augustine was then taken was then taken to its logical conclusions extreme by the Protestant reformers. A, another instance in which the Protestant reformers threw out many aspects of apostolic traditional Christianity is still present in Rome threw out the good stuff and kept some of the things we said they should have thrown out or should have reevaluated, should have looked at which includes Augustine's understanding of, of Christian anthropology, his understanding of humanity. So, keep in mind that guilt aspect. So then we have the teachings of, um, we're talking now 1500s, jumping ahead to the Reformation, the teachings of John Calvin. Which and this is a this is a broad characterization. It's kind of a caricature, uh, generalization, but it still opens us to some essential uh, understandings of of Western Christian thought that again is distinct from 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 uh, orthodoxy. So Calvin takes Augustine's even though Calvin's rebelling from Rome, he keeps Augustine's negative view of humanity and kind of crystallizes it and focuses it into a, a, a system, a system of, of a vision of humanity in relationship to God, which is presented in and explained by the word tulip. She hates the tulip. <laughs> it does not like the tulip. <laughs> I think it's instructive. We discuss the tool. And again, this is not orthodoxy. This is this is a different vision of Christianity that that's distinct from orthodoxy. So, Calvin looks at at um, Augustine's teaching, and he says that humanity, the T, is for total depravity. That he says that we human beings are total totally depraved totally as a result of sin as a result of the guilt of original sin incapable of good incapable of doing good incapable of righteousness in relation to God we're depraved, we're broken, we're perverted um, therefore because there's nothing we can do Godwardly there's nothing we can do in our relationship to God to draw near to God that there the you in tulip is for unconditional election predestination that because looking out over the vast mass of demnata of humanity who can who cannot save themselves who cannot move towards God in any way God chooses who will be saved who will be lost arbitrarily Unconditionally, without conditions, he elects whom he chooses to elect, electing you either for heaven or for hell. That's the doctrine of predestination. Uh, Presbyterianism, classic traditional Presbyterianism, is Calvinist, and so are other aspects of 
Reformation Christianity, in, including as we see, we'll see uh, the Baptist <laughs> Baptist faith as well. So since the since we're totally depraved and we're unconditionally elected, that God chooses who'll be who'll be saved, then there's limited atonement, which means that Jesus. That, that John 3.16 really isn't applicable. God so loved the world uh, that he gave his only begotten son to whoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. No, limited, this means God only dies for the elect since he, since he chooses he'll be saved. So the cross is only for the, the saved. Limited. It's limited to those that are saved. It doesn't save the lost. The lost are lost. So then there's the I... It's for irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. One of my favorites. Since since God does all the choosing, God decided decides who's saved. You when he he gives grace to those he is saving, and they you can't resist it. Can't resist that grace. I never said this, but I'm gonna say. Save. Should I sit down? Many are called, few are chosen. Many are called, few are chosen, she said. Yeah, or is this, how's that come in? You know, I mean, all right. Many are called. Few are chosen. Few are chosen. Same idea. Oh, not exactly. No, why? Because there's no, there's no, there's no choice in the matter with this. Many are called, few are chosen. So those that are called. There's now there's a mystery of chosenness in Bible. There are there are clearly the twelve apostles are chosen. We don't know by what criterion, but they're chosen. So there's a there's a mystery of chosenness. There are saints that God seems to have tapped them as children for sanctity, for holy life, that they, they go on that path. But we would never say that the this system implies that the image of God is fractured because a fundamental attribute of the image of God in us is freedom, free will. When we say that we're essentially good and that we're made in God's image, we're free beings having a free relationship with God. This is not a free relationship with God. So the orthodoxy is a free relationship with God. The biblical image of our life with God is marital is marriage. Christ is the bridegroom. We, men and women, uh, boys and girls, we're the bride of God. The, the image of our life with God is maritable, marital, give and take, real daily walk with Christ. And those who speak of having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we can't argue with that. that that's, that's certainly the way that one should see it. But, he, but it tends to be those churches are tainted with Calvinism. So... Still don't, still don't agree. Well, anyway. The freedom, the free will. Remember the free will. So, total de- we're totally depraved. We have to be elected totally, uh, unconditionally elected by God. Uh, there's limited atonement. There's irresistible grace for those who are saved. And then so, of course, there's the perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. Tulip. Perseverance of the saints. Once saved, always saved. So, 
this Calvinism uh, impacts a significant body of Reformed Christianity, that it's Calvinist in its, in its origin. Most of what we see today in these reflections of these Reformed churches in the Calvinist tradition are a modified, softened Calvinism. Um, which, if you would say, for instance, the Billy Graham version of this is you can choose, you can know tonight if you'll be saved. So it's a, it's a modified Calvinism in the sense that you, you have a free will choice to accept or reject Jesus. You can accept, but then once, what, but then once you accept Christ, then the irresistible grace kicks in, the perseverance of the saints, once saved, always saved. So it's still a, a modified version of Calvinism. Strict Calvinism is very harsh. They, they talk about how the, the pilgrims, the early uh, settlers uh, to America, the colonists, many of them were of a, of Cal, Puritanism was Calvinist. It was a Calvinist, and they were persecuted in England, so they, they fled here for religious uh, freedom. But they taught predestination. They taught unconditional election. And they say that in the, in the diaries of many of these, the early colonists, the anxiety, the unknowing of, am I with the saved or am I lost? Am I with the blessed or am I damned, eternally damned? And so it, it, that, that anxiety and that uncertainty of that, that angst about that, comes out in, in, in their thoughts uh, recorded. And some people say that, for instance, that the reason America uh, and the Protestant work ethic was such a dy dynamic uh, empowerment of this society is that these Cal early Calvinists... Um, not knowing if they're with the elect or with the damned, said humanly, well, if, if I'm successful in life, if I'm successful in this world, do, does my wealth, do my, does my success perhaps uh, evidence the fact that I'm on God's good side? That I'll, you know, my blessedness as a result of my richness. Um, again, human, human beings... A, a twisted theology, we would say, twisted and, and the theology is perverse, not people, uh, is causing people this great, this great uh, anxiety and struggle about their about their relationship with God, that they have no say in the matter. Either you're saved or you're lost. Yes. Me. You're mumbling. Oh, that's okay. That's <laughs> well, I always I always said that they that if they're rich, they feel like they haven't made the shade. Well, it's a human, yeah, it's a human, well, sense of, a sense of uh, security in, in material, uh, your material life. And that has nothing to do with it. No, we'd say no. In fact, it can be a hindrance to your, to your salvation. It um, doesn't have to be, but it can be. So, this Calvinism had to be, people couldn't, couldn't, people couldn't abide strict Calvinism. And, and you can understand, you know, come to our church you may be going to hell, but come anyway. You know, you're probably damned, but come to church and hear the word. Uh, it doesn't sell. And so it was, again, it was modified to uh, circuit rider preachers going around and calling people to make, in, implying that they still have free will and a free choice 
implying to and calling people to make a decision for Christ later later to be known as an altar call in established uh, churches and so forth where there's buildings. But but it was but again, you can know you're saved. You accept Jesus and you and you're and and you're 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 saved. So it's it's the best part of Calvinism. You can you can make the choice for your salvation rather than it's all left to God. Yes. So, again, this starts with a very negative vision of humanity. Um, and, and there's even been a Calvinist revival that actually started in Birmingham, a uh, Presbyterian denomination that revived in Briarwood and, and is the, was the hub and center for a, for a kind of a rededicated Calvinistic vision, though I still don't think they tell people, come to church, you're probably going to hell. Um, I, I expect they don't sell it that way. I, I, I talked to a guy once who I said, you're Calvinist. Do you believe in predestination? He says, yes. He says, I go through a doorway that says free will. And when I come through the doorway and I look back, it says predestined. You know, which it, it's obviously something you learn in Sunday school. And I thought, well, that's clever. But it's also, so God's really deceiving us. We have the illusion of existential freedom. We have the illusion that we're free, freely acting, moving human beings, but it's in fact all predestined and predecided, and we're just robots and just actors on the stage and so forth, doing our part. Uh, and it's a temptation. It's a human temptation to say, if God's sovereign, God's in charge, well, then it's all decided by God. What say do I have? Or if I go the other way and say, well, I'm a free human being and I don't believe in God. I do what I pl- do as I please. Um, both, both. Uh, I mean, it's it's the struggle of of the the holding together human freedom and God's sovereignty. But we say that we are free. That's that's essentially part of the human of the of the image of God in us as human beings, and that we're um, uh, freely given that that opportunity to say yes or no to God. And there's and love can only be on that basis. There's no love in this system. There's no love here. This is just. God acting on us against our will against our any decision we make again that's why it had to be modified we they had to they kept a very negative vision of hum, human beings so and that's what you're right you're right your papers are going to talk about the fact that uh, the struggle are we saved by faith or works the orthodox answer is yes both Orthodox usually, the West is always struggling between and, uh, either or, either or. Rome had a system by which uh, you could, it was, it was felt by Luther and the other reformers that you could buy salvation, that you could buy righteousness uh, through acts of, of, of mercy and acts of donation to the church. You could have sins forgiven for yourself, for your relatives, 
uh, and, and so forth. And, and, and it was the system of indulgences was, was this works righteousness is that, that the reformers rebelled against it, but, but it was a, it was a overreaction to a, what was a legitimate corruption, what orthodox, it was not orthodoxy to have this indulgence system. It was Rome after 500 years of broken apart from orthodoxy, they developed this, this system of works righteousness that's not that was not the original Christian gospel. So we we sympathize with the reformers for reacting against it, but the reaction was extreme where where Luther says uh not works but faith alone. Grace you're saved by faith alone, by grace alone, not by your works. Because you're depraved, because you're not able to do any good anything good towards God. You're you're helpless, useless, hopeless uh in your in your in your attempts towards God. And um, what's typically preached, there's two classic passages which we say evidence faith and works, but, but are preached in a very particular selective way. The first is Ephesians 2, 8. And you'll hear preachers preach this. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. And they stop there. That sounds good. That sounds, well, there's faith alone. That's real. Luther was right. We're saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves, as the gift of, not of works, lest any man should. The next, in the next line, verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, that we, that which God hath or, before ordained that we should walk in them. By grace you're saved, not of works, is the gift of God, for we are his workmanship, created for good works. So again, that's holding both, but they never they never preached verse 10, the workmanship part, the part about works. And the works in this context, which Luther had to know, but I think he's, he chose to, to use the, the, the works cited as... as Condemning Christian good works, Saint Paul is talking about Judaism. He's talking about the law. He's talking about Jewish works. If you read it that way, he says, "For by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves; it is the gift of God, not of the Jewish law, lest any man should boast." See, it's it's the works he's referring to is Judaism. He's saying you're saved by Jesus, not by the works of the law. You're saved by grace, not by the law anymore. But that's not Christian good work. He didn't. He's not condemning Christian good works, for, for for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So the Lord encourages good works, encourages our good actions towards each other, and therefore towards God. The other is uh, Philippians two, Ephesians two, and Philippians two, Philippians two twelve. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but not much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So work, here's works. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you work, God is working. The partnership, the marriage. We're working towards God. God's work helping us. Now, 
And so we speak of synergy in orthodoxy. God's energies and our energies working together. Synergy. S-Y-N-E-R-G-Y. Which means two works, combination. Ergia is work in Greek. So it's the, it's the bringing together of two works, the human and the divine. And so, again, orthodoxy is not afraid of the scripture. Um, we're a full gospel church. We're not going to quote one line and not the other. We're not going to quote part of the scripture and not the whole thing. And again, um, we, we believe that the Christian life is a walk with God, um, walking in faith. And, and striving to do Christian good works, not that we can buy our salvation, not that we can buy our way to heaven, but our righteousness, our desire to be good, our desire for good, opens ourselves to grace. We become a fit vessel. We become, uh, uh, St. Paul speaks of us as temples of the Holy Spirit. That if we're going to be a temple of the Holy Spirit, that we have to strive for, for the purity and, and the truth and the holiness um, to, 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 to be that to be that temple and again it starts with a more positive vision of human life that we're capable we're capable to say yes to God we're capable to move Godwardly we're capable to say yes to God we're capable to say no that's the free will orthodoxy is all about the free will and the positive vision of human life even after the fall even after even with sin uh, wearing us down, um, that that we can that we can uh, we have uh, the 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 ability and and the calling to move towards God and to resist sin, to resist the devil, and um, with God's grace and help always. So it's always in partnership with God. It's never it's never the teaching. Well, you so because you're because you're you're good and you're made in God's image, you can just do good and you don't need grace. We always need grace. We always need God's grace and the you'll hear the fathers condemn that philanthropy and good works that are not done in Christ's name though you know we 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 kind of rejoice in goodness wherever it is you know but but um, it's always in partnership with God one other one other point that comes out of the out of the negative view of humanity that that, that Augustine taught is um, the Roman doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. What's the Immaculate Conception about? Whose conception are we speaking of with the Immaculate Conception? Mary's. Virgin Mary's conception. It developed, literally, was, was only codified as a doctrine in the Roman Church in the year 1870, which in church history is like last week. 1870. They, now keep in mind, Augustine says that we're that we're guilty. A baby is born guilty of original sin. Well, the theologians, the gears turning, and these doctrines are all very human. The more the gears have to turn, the more human it is. Um, they said, "Well, now, if 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 Mary has original sin, and guilt is sexually transmitted, um, we can't have her." pass the guilt of sin to Jesus. So, we're going to say that Mary is immaculately conceived of, of Saints Joachim and Anna, that she, she, of all human beings that ever lived, is the, is the 
the first and only one to be born without original sin with that guilt factor there that, that Gustin taught that, that, that they're hung up on. And so Mary's taken out of the box of, of humanity. So she's not, she's not one of us. She's a superhuman. She's a unique creature in all of human history. Now they mean to honor her and celebrate her, but we say that's that's honor that's inappropriate, that's beyond, that's that's a theological error creating another error. That we that's a it's a dishonoring of her to say she's not human, that she's some kind of unique creature that way because she doesn't transmit guilt to Jesus. Jesus, Jesus as a baby is not guilty, in his fallen humanity even, is not guilty of any sin. He's born essentially good right so one error leads to another so we don't believe in the immaculate conception and also when they speak of Mary's death at the assumption this this doctrine was can only confirmed in 1954 that they said at Mary's death well she did not die that she's assumed into heaven why does she not die? Because she's because she's sinless. She's she's immaculately conceived and she's superhuman. She's not like anyone else, so she cannot suffer death in, a, in any way. So she's simply taken to heaven. We say that she does, being a, a human being, one of us. Um, at Christmas we say, "What shall we offer to the O Christ, who, who has appeared on earth as a man? The earth offers a cave. The the the, the heavens offer the star." The Magi offer their gifts. The shepherds offer their wonder. We offer thee a virgin mother. That she, we offer her to God as our gift to, to, for him to be born. And uh, she's one of us. And she's not, a weird, she's not strange. She's not weird. She's not strangely conceived. Um, our Lord is uniquely conceived you know, of God the Father and her. But... but um, so we say that she did die, but then her soul is taken to heaven. The Lord would not, and her body, but the Lord would not allow her to see corruption in her flesh because of his, his, because of his honor, the honor of having born God and the love he has for her. But that's a, a subtle difference there. Somebody had a hand up? Oh, I was about to ask about the assumption, and you just addressed that. Okay, I knew you would. <laughs> and I knew you were... I knew you were going there. I had to head you off. <laughs> had to beat you to it. So, um, so you'll there's the things about faith and works that you'll read. will will fill out a lot of what uh, I haven't said here, but um, that's that's what makes orthodoxy different from uh, once saved, always saved Christianity, which has its roots in Calvinism. We don't. There's nothing in the Bible that says today you know you're saved, that you can know by choosing, um, that it's a daily walk, it's a daily conversion, it's a daily acceptance of Christ, it's a it's a, a it's the whole life is a movement towards salvation. There's not a it's not a once and for all decision, though people have conversion experiences and life changing experiences, and that's fine. That's that's you know that's. That's okay. That just the, the assumption that that you're saved and therefore doesn't matter really after that what how you behave or how you live 
is is definitely treacherous and definitely a false gospel and definitely uh, a a, a uh, opening to false security and a, a false sense of security um, that people are given by that gospel and that can it can go to extremes there's a extreme teaching that your your former boss had when you found him reading his uh, he found you reading your Bible yeah. in the car at, at lunchtime yeah. what did he say he was saved he told me, you don't have to read that. You're saved. You don't have to read the Bible. You're saved. Now, that's ridiculous, but it, that's the extreme to say, if you don't have, if you, if you know you're saved, you, it's, you know, it doesn't, and, and there, it's not that anybody really wants to preach that, but it's implied that no matter what you're having, except Christ and being saved, um, and I remember when I was working, you know, occasionally a fellow worker would say, well, I got saved last night. Okay. <laughs> well, that's good. And, and I'm not going to argue that person out of that because there's no context for it. And, I, and I don't, you don't even want to take them out of the joy and hope that they have, even though it's, we would say, strictly speaking, it's, it's, it's false. It's not how Christianity is lived in the Scripture. Um, people do convert and people do f- come and follow Christ, but there again, there's no assumption of of, of instant salvation. But um, anyway, so the Orthodox understanding of walking with God on a daily basis and struggling to go cl- grow closer to God is not as great a selling point as you can know you're saved. You know that that we speak of struggle of 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 unseen warfare of spiritual warfare of struggling against our sin, of struggling to resist sin, to grow closer to God, to use our freedom uh, positively towards God and so forth, and and falling and getting up again and going to confession because the church is full of sinners, not full of holy and righteous and perfect people by any means, um, that that doesn't sell in in, a marketing way as does eternal security that you can know. Tonight, Billy... Tonight you can know. Billy would say, the bustles will wait for you. Come, come forward. Um, you can, you can, and he was a brilliant preacher. But the message of tonight you can know, we would say, is just not biblical. It's not taught in the scripture. It's not taught ever by the fathers. We have confidence in salvation. We have a Savior. We have hope of salvation. We're not Calvinist either in the sense of, well, we don't know and we won't find out till later. We can have hope. We can have assurance. We can have trust and 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 a, and a confidence not in ourselves but in the Lord. Um, but but again, our our freedom remains to say no even to the last moment, and um, that we that we that we see it that way. And there's even a, I think there even was with one of the fathers, um, and I'm not going to say I'm not going to remember it right, but. They, he said, "Father, you're holy. You're perfect. Um, you're 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 saved." And he says, "I haven't." And then he answered, "Well, I haven't I haven't begun to repent? I need more time, you know." And um, but anyway, it's it. There was a hum, There's a humility about true spirituality that you don't boast of 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 your salvation. You don't boast, except you boast in the Lord. But you don't. You don't uh, boast in your own righteousness, your own self, even though you're striving to be righteous, to be spiritual, to be holy, um, and so forth.
and sanctity, holiness is is as you're go as you're getting close to the holy God and commune having union with the holy God, you're becoming holy. And so holiness is it could say is the goal on the way is to, is uh, is to be filled with God's grace, which is sanctifying, making us holy. Anything else? Questions, comments, rebuttals, denials?